0: And in terms of like that you know mammalian brain that's in that fight or flight mode our brains don't care about giving us anxiety they don't care about making us feel bad or shaming us all they care about all your brain truly cares about on you know the most important level is survival
1: that was just a brief snippet from today's Conversation with my first guest ever on the Chautauqua podcast, Dr. Molly St. Dennis. And just to give you a little overview before we jump into the episode, Dr. Molly St. Dennis is a licensed clinical psychologist specializing in the treatment of adults with anxiety and OCD. She has a particular interest in mindfulness and self compassion based therapies, such as acceptance and commitment therapy, also known as ACT. Molly has also has an interest in disseminating therapy tools to the general public and co-hosted her own podcast called Therapists in the Wild. She currently works at a therapy practice in Denver, Colorado called Anxiety Solutions. And I really think everyone's going to enjoy this episode. Molly gets into understanding your values and how to use that to actually attain your goals. We break down habits as well. And then she really dives deep into self-compassion and self-criticism, why we're so quick to turn to self-criticism and understanding that, and then how we can use self-compassion instead to really stay on track and meet our goals. So please enjoy and stay tuned to the end for more information on how to get in touch with Dr. Molly St. Dennis. Hi Molly, thank you so much for coming on the Shit Talk Podcast. It's a pleasure to have you as a my I will say our, as my first guest. How yes. are you? Hi, hi, hi.
0: I'm so honored to be here. I've been looking forward to this for so long and I'm doing great.
1: Good. Glad to hear it. Um, Just a little background for the listeners. Molly and I grew up together in good old Connecticut. And as you heard from the bio, she's a very impressive person now. I will refer to her as Dr. Molly. <laughs> but I know her as Molly, but I will refer to her as strictly Dr. Molly. Um, but so, tell me a little bit about what you're up to. I know you're living in Denver. I know you're a clinical psychologist. How's it going? What have you been doing?
0: Yes. So yeah, I've been living in Denver for a little over a year, and I yeah, I officially became licensed this fall. Um, and right now I'm working at a practice, a group practice that specializes in anxiety disorders and OCD. And so as probably we'll talk more about today, a lot of my interest is in like mindfulness-based and kind of acceptance-based therapies um, and self-compassion. I've just found that those concepts really enhance any other treatment. Um, so if you've heard of acceptance and commitment therapy therapy, that's that's um, the type of therapy that I tend to practice from. Amazing!
1: I feel like yeah. that's something that everyone could use more of, just based on the name.
0: For sure, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, like just
1: I don't know much, but just going off of that.
0: <laughs> yep, yep. It's it's definitely something. Yeah, accepting your feelings, committing to your values, and yeah, it's very cool. Awesome.
1: So today, Dr. Molly is going to walk us through understanding your values versus goals. We're going to talk about habits and how to start new habits and make them actually stick. And she's also going to get into a bit about what she already mentioned, acceptance and commitment therapy, self-compassion, and how that can help you be motivated and experience true growth true growth and change.
0: Yes. I feel like this is good timing too, right after the new year. I know you did a new year's episode, but yeah, this is kind of a continuation in some ways.
1: Yeah. And you can never learn enough about how to build habits. It's just something like that to me, like the more information I learn and mm-hmm. from different different perspectives. So I'm a dietitian, you're a clinical psychologist, you're going to bring a whole other layer of expertise to that whole thing, setting goals, understanding your values, sticking to habits. So yeah, you can, there's, you can never have enough habit talk, as far as I'm concerned.
0: Agreed. But totally yeah. agree. It's a lifelong practice.
1: It, you know what? It really is. And I wish it was, was easier to – I wish it were easy to say, like, oh, yeah, just make a habit. Oh, yeah, that's a habit. Like, if it were that easy, we wouldn't be here. So yes. it is a lifelong practice.
0: I, I do want to tell you, Liz, that when I listened to your first episode on water <laughs> – it's been life changing for me, honestly. Oh my God. I was getting headaches most days because I wasn't drinking enough water and I You're didn't realize. And I'm a doctor. I just and like pointed that out. And she's a doctor. <laughs> and I'm a doctor and I don't drink enough water and my brain was shriveling up, as you said. Like, oh my um, God. And then when you said that, I was like, well, that makes perfect sense. Especially living in Denver, it's so dry mm-hmm. here. You need yeah. like a lot more water. So. Um it's been interesting because at first the first week I tried to implement drinking more water I was really motivated I had just listened to the episode and successful and then it kind of just like the habit kind of fell off and then I started getting headaches again and not drinking enough water and then as I was kind of preparing for this episode and thinking more about habits and actually how to like create a more sustainable practice with drinking more water I applied what we're talking about today to my water drinking. And it's been very successful. Yes. Oh my God. So this
1: is great. First of all, I love that you found it helpful and that I impacted the life of a doctor, but I have to say (laughs) you can kick me through the screen, but as a dietitian going into the hospital, doing my dietetic internship, you learn not all doctors are so bright. Like I've known you your whole life. You're extremely bright and you were bright before you were a doctor, but we give credit just because of the name and you assume they know everything. They don't necessarily know everything. You're a very well-educated doctor. And here you were dehydrated.
0: Exactly. I'm a dehydrated doctor. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I sound like an asshole, but no, you get, you get what I'm saying. It's, it's more I do. Like, nobody's perfect. We all have our areas of expertise. I'm flattered that you listened. And I'm so thrilled that it actually helped because that's the goal. And even doctors get dehydrated. That's my point. Mm-hmm. Amen to that. You're human Everybody poops, everybody gets dehydrated.
0: Yes. Yes. And everybody, yeah, there's always things to learn. I know a lot about what I know about, but I'm definitely learning a lot listening to your podcast for sure. Oh, thank you. And the same goes for me with you. As I mentioned
1: in the intro, Molly has her own podcast called Therapist in the Wild, and you will be hooked after you listen to today's episode. So I definitely encourage all the listeners to go hit that up, but let's get into it. So We're starting first about understanding values and goals, the differences, and why goals fail without values.
0: Yes. So maybe I'll just start by explaining kind of what the difference between values and goals are. Um, So I tend to think of values as directions that we want to be moving in in life, whereas goals are kind of more of what we want to achieve along the way. Um, So, for example, a value might be heading north and a goal would be like a river or a mountain that you want to aim to see while you're traveling in that direction. And values can be thought of also like a compass in life. So when you kind of start to get off track, maybe you set a goal for yourself and you're kind of veering off or not, not achieving that the way to get back on track is to reconnect with your value and use that as a compass to kind of just keep bringing you back to what's actually important in your life. What were you going to ask?
1: Is it fair to say that oftentimes we will choose goals based on our values?
0: I think that that is probably true most of the time that we tend to choose goals based on our values. However, If we don't really have a clear sense of the value behind the goal, maybe it kind of might be like a little murky in your mind. Like, yeah, you know, I generally want to I want to lose five pounds, let's say. But you don't really know why that's important to you. It will be more difficult to to really achieve that goal and sustain that progress. Um, But typically there is an underlying value there. It Just maybe needs to take a little bit of time, a little bit of mindfulness to clarify what that is. Got it.
1: So for example, saying, I want to lose five pounds so that I am healthier and feel better. Right. Exactly. That's the value on
0: the goal. Exactly. So yeah, like let's say the value was being an intuitive or a mindful eater. That's something that's an ongoing process. It's never going to, you're never going to be able to like check that off the list and be like, yep. Yep. I've been intuitive enough, you know, that's a, it's a lifelong, <laughs> lifelong practice.
1: Build my quota of intuition. We're done. Exactly.
0: That. <laughs> that um, whereas like the goal, like, okay, so so that's the value being a mindful eater. The goal could be, yeah, I want to lose five pounds or, um, you know, I want to um, exercise every day or whatever it may be. That's something that can be crossed off a list. You can achieve it. You know, you're accomplishing it and goals are, they're helpful because they help you indicate that you are moving in the direction of your value. Um, but it's, yeah, sorry, I just forgot what I was going to say.
1: No, no, that's great. Um, I had a question too, and now I forgot what I was going to say. So well, that this little snippet we'll come back to. Um, I want to talk about, oh, I had a question for you. And this can be, this does not have to be food related, but in practice, is there a specific goal or like category of goals that you find most people don't have values associated with and then they tend to not be successful? Like, is there any area of life where you see this more often than than not in
0: practice? Hmm. That's a good question. I could imagine, you know, I'm trying to kind of think about different people that I've worked with and there may be goals that people set that are more related to societal expectations um, or maybe like family values that kind of get passed down and you're like, okay, I should care about this thing. I should Mm -hmm. be setting this goal for myself because society tells me that I should or my family tells me that I should, Um, but you don't really care about that that much, Mm -hmm. Um, so I could imagine situation like that but it would probably differ for each person
1: yeah okay interesting i was just curious if you as a psychologist see like people constantly try to make goals in this one area and it's an area that for some reason goes overlooked with values and and so the goals don't really work out um Mm -hmm. yeah
0: i think like yeah i think what i've what i've noticed is that like if somebody doesn't know generally where they're headed, you know, you don't know that you don't have that compass, you don't have that direction, it's easy to kind of get off course and let the feelings and thoughts guide your behavior rather than your values. So like, let's say somebody set the goal to go to the gym each morning, um, but then they wake up and they're tired and they're in a bad mood. And so they decide not to go to the gym that morning. Now they're kind of off track with that goal and if you don't have that compass, it is difficult to get back on track because maybe you feel like, oh, well, I kind of failed. I didn't mm-hmm. meet my goal. It makes you kind of want to give up. Um, you don't have that like bigger picture in mind that can help you stay the course and know that those types of slip ups like are, are only natural and really don't matter in the big picture of life when you're committing to this lifelong practice of whatever it may be.
1: Mm hmm. And it sounds too like if you don't have the value in mind, if you, for example, to go back to your example of like, you skip the morning workout and there's nothing, there's no value really associated with it. It's kind of easy to just be like, well, whatever, I missed it. But if you have really specific reasons and values associated with why you were getting up to go to the gym and you skip that one workout, in my opinion- you would be more motivated the next day to be like, well, here's why this is important. I'm getting back into it. I'm not just throwing in the towel.
0: Absolutely. It provides motivation to, know, to understand the why behind your actions is motivating for sure. Got it. So now as a
1: dietitian, of course, I have to ask, I see a lot of patients and clients, whatever you would like to call them, um, we, we assign value to food whether it's mm-hmm. a positive or negative value or something really specific. And I'm sure you've seen this in practice just because you're dealing with humans and humans have to eat to live. So we all have some sort of relationship with food. Mm-hmm. How do food related values come to be? How do they impact us? And just going further off of that, like how does our environment impact that behavior? So for example, Do we eat differently around different people? How do our values impact
0: our food choices? Mm -hmm. Great questions. Yeah. So I think first thing I'll say is that eating releases dopamine, which is that feel-good chemical, and it provides that instant gratification. So if you're having a bad day, if you're struggling, if you're feeling stressed, eating is such a natural way to cope with uncomfortable emotions, because it gives you that immediate feeling, immediate positive feeling. Um, And when you start to do that regularly, when you start to kind of develop habits around that, where maybe every day at the end of, you know, your workday, you feel stressed, you're ruminating about the day, and then you go and grab for food to kind of quell that anxiety, you're developing an association or kind of a conditioned response So that when you come home from work, maybe one day you're not even really that stressed. But because you always tend to eat when you get home from work, that's going to make you just immediately think about, oh, this is my time to eat again. So those patterns, those kind of conditioned responses and associations of food with different um, emotions or different kind of settings or contexts can really start to build.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I feel like this is really where mindful eating comes into play, like understanding, am I truly hungry? Why am I eating? And understanding what we like to call your triggers, which I know at this point, at this day and age, that word has become so overused. Although it's Mm -hmm. such, that word, like nothing else, in my opinion, gets the point home other than that word. Like, I don't think there's a synonym that is equal to that. So I'm just going to go ahead and use it. But, you know, understanding what triggers you to eat in certain environments or emotions that trigger you to eat, whatever it is. Um, I want to talk more about that and learn about that. Yes. For
0: yeah. So your other question was kind of about how different social contexts impact your eating behavior. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a great question because eating is definitely strongly influenced by social context as I think just most of us kind of intuitively know, like we eat right. differently when we're with other people than when we're by ourselves and we might even eat differently with different groups of people. Mm-hmm. Um, And that's, that's, that's because conforming to like, to other people's behavior is just a very natural, adaptive and rewarding thing. As humans, we're always trying to adapt to the norms around us in order to fit in. And that's just an evolutionary thing. So um, yeah, if if you're around people, and everyone's like, Oh, you know, we're getting salads today, not wanting to be the one who's getting pizza, right. Mm -hmm. So that just might be kind of like a social norm type thing. Um, But I think what's cool about values is that thinking about your values, having a strong connection to those values can, can change that dynamic a little bit. Mm -hmm. If you're like, you know what, my value is intuitive eating, mindful eating. I really want to listen to my body and you go out to lunch and everybody's getting salads, but your body is craving a sandwich, then it's easier to kind of not necessarily fall into the natural habitual pattern of just doing what everyone else is doing and actually to, to honor your value of, of eating in a way that's consistent with what your body's asking for.
1: Absolutely. So you're saying that once again, values can help you kind of stay on track Mm -hmm. regardless of the environment. So even if you're in, whether it's like a peer pressure situation or, you know, not wanting to be the odd man out or, you know, just trying to blend in with the group, whatever it is, when you have those values It makes it much more likely that you're going to stay your course because you know, you know, even if you are the odd man out, even if they are peer pressuring you, you want to eat the way you want to eat. And there's reasons behind that, and you're much more likely to stick to it. It sounds like
0: exactly. Exactly. And maybe your value there is also just like having fun with the group, you know, enjoying your time together and bonding over this food you're eating together. And so, you know your decisions might vary depending on which value you're you know is most important to you in that context um but i think that can make you leave a situation kind of feeling better about the fact of like i didn't just do what i you know what everybody else was doing i did what felt right to me based on what i value
1: mhm absolutely yeah. so that's really helpful and i just want to mention to listeners if you are someone that does not have values set up it sounds like I need to do an episode on that specifically, but <laughs> having values is very helpful for staying the course, staying, doing what you said you're going to do. If you are eating a specific way or avoiding certain foods and you don't have values behind it, it sounds like it's much more likely to not necessarily come to fruition. Um, that might have been, that might not be the best description, but um, you may not be as likely to stick to it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think for people who who maybe have are not sure exactly what their values are, one way to clarify that is kind of to work backwards and think about like, okay, what are your goals or what are the things that you're generally trying to work on in your life, and then just ask yourself why, like, why mm-hmm. is that important to me, um, and that will typically lead you to the value underlying it. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, oh, I want to wake up. Each morning and work out why it's like, oh, because I've noticed that that helps with my stress management. So that's the reason why. Got so it. that can be one way to kind of get some clarity around that. Got it. Thank you. That is really helpful. And
1: it sounds silly, but you know, so a lot of times we have values and we just haven't labeled them in our head as values. They are values, but we haven't sat down and been like, these are my values. But sometimes you don't necessarily have them thought out. So it makes sense why certain goals may not work out or you may not follow through if you haven't actually sat down to come up with those values.
0: Exactly. It's true. It's true. And I don't know if you've read or heard of the book Atomic Habits by James Clear. Of course. Such a good one. Yeah. So helpful. And yeah, in that book, he talks about the recipe for sustained success Mm -hmm. with habits being First to kind of decide the type of person that you want to be, which right. is basically values, right? Like mm-hmm. kind of think about what, yeah, I want to be the kind of person who, for me, it's like, I want to stay hydrated. I want to be a hydrated person. That's something I was saying to myself as I was drinking water the past week is like, yeah, I'm a hydrated person, you know? You um all now I am <laughs> a hydrated doctor what?
1: now. So many people are dehydrated <laughs> and they don't even know it. It's like it's so silly to me because it's so easy to change. But
0: yes. Yeah. Yes. But it's about it's about building these habits. And so it, it does help to kind of like, yeah, have that in your head, like, yeah, this is the kind of person I want to be. And then um and then proving that to yourself with small wins. So there's a relationship between values and identity, mm-hmm. where like if you kind of set set a value for yourself. This is something that's important to me. And then start acting in line with that value. Then your brain starts to build up evidence to say like, oh yeah, clearly I am someone who values hydration because I'm drinking water all day. Mm -hmm. Um, And so then kind of, that can also help like the way that you view yourself over time through staying committed to those small actions that move you in the direction of that value.
1: Absolutely. And going more off of habits I know you have a recipe for sustained success. Um, let's get into habits and the process that you recommend to patients for building healthy habits.
0: Yes, absolutely. A lot of um, a lot of what I'll say around this is is um, based on James Clear's work because he's kind of he's like Mr. Habit. He's Mr. Habits, and yeah. he's he's done all the research and so um, kind of put together research from a lot of different areas. And, um, so he, he kind of comes up with a four-step process basically to building good habits. And the first step is making it obvious. So that basically means like putting cues around. Um, so you don't have to, you know, if, if you want to, you know, take your pills every day, leave the pill jar on the counter if you want to drink more water, put your water bottle right next to you. Just mm-hmm. make it as obvious as possible. Mm-hmm. Inside workout, yes, exactly. Inside and mind for sure. Um, the second, uh, the second step is making it attractive. So, not, I think a lot of times when people are trying to build habits, they feel like, okay, you know, I'm, I'm, let's say, trying to eat more healthy, so I'm going to have steamed chicken and vegetables, right? But that doesn't taste good to them. Mm-hmm. So that's not very attractive. It doesn't feel fun to eat that. So trying to think about like, what would I want to eat? That would also be healthy. Or if you want to exercise, you know, pick, try to pick an exercise that you actually enjoy doing. That's the best exercise you could do, right? Like yeah. something that you're going to keep up with because you like it, whether it's dance, whether it's yoga, whether it's running, whatever it may be. So trying to make it attractive for yourself. And that's kind of like working with nature rather than against it. Mm-hmm absolutely mm-hmm. and then the third step there is is making it easy so um kind of having that mentality of like I'm the type of person who does x y and z and just making it as easy as possible for yourself to stick to that so having foods prepared or um finding an exercise that you can do in your house if you know that a barrier for yourself is going outside in the winter right mm-hmm. Um, so just trying to make it as easy as possible so you don't have too many steps to to kind of go through to, to get to that behavior. And then the last thing is just making it satisfying. And this just kind of closes the feedback loop and basically communicates to your brain like, yes, this was a positive experience. Let's do this again. Mm-hmm. Um, so just kind of making it something pleasurable or rewarding so that we can want to repeat it.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, I I spoke about this a few weeks ago in the resolutions episode. And if I remember correctly, I quoted some data that they said, you know, everyone going into it thought what would help them stick to the resolutions was if it was important, something they were supposed to do, and if it was something that they enjoyed to do. And in the end, what the scientists found was that it didn't matter that it was important. All that really mattered was that they actually enjoyed it. So Mm finding work you enjoy, finding healthy foods you enjoy. If you don't like it and you don't actually enjoy it, it's so tough to stick to it. Even mm-hmm. if you know it's good for you, even if you know you're supposed to do it, that's not enough, which, you know, if it were, we wouldn't all be in, you know, certain situations. We'd all have a perfect diet. We'd all have perfect, um, you know, exercise routines that we stuck yes. to, you know, religiously. So right, really interesting.
0: It is. It is. That's such a helpful reminder. And even just personally, I know I, I used to be like, oh, I want to be someone who runs. Um, and I would try to force myself to run and it would always be like, oh, do I have to do this today? I don't really want to okay. do this today. Yeah. You know, or going to the gym. I felt the same way about that. And then that when I just realized like, yeah, you know what? I'm just going to do what I like. And mm-hmm. now I do yoga videos at home, which is so much easier and mm-hmm. I enjoy it. It's I've been able to be very, very consistent with that. So I think – so what you're saying makes a lot of sense to me.
1: Yeah. No, I have a similar situation. I used to do like Soul Cycle, berries, fly, with all the nonsense. And it's like you would go get a sweat. It didn't really change my body. My goal wasn't really to lose weight, but I definitely was not losing weight. And I'd be like, okay, I got to work out it. Like I did what I was supposed to do, but I hated it. And it really isn't until 2020 when I moved and – I started going to SLT, which is a form of Pilates, stands for strength and length and tone. That I actually found a form of exercise that I loved. That and walking, which anyone who listens regularly knows I'm very
0: <laughs> steps.
1: I have take all business walks and I take that very seriously. But I am more active now than I ever have been. And I'm not going to these insane classes where you're sweating buckets and yeah, it's like when I actually enjoy to do it, I look forward to it. I go. It, it's not a chore. So yes, very important.
0: Totally. Yeah. It seems like out of all those four steps, like the the making it attractive one mm-hmm. is kind of what we're saying feels the most important, oh at least to God. us.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Like because otherwise, if you're like, okay, I'm going to run tomorrow. It's going to be five degrees. I'm going to hate every second of it. It's like, that does not look good. That doesn't sound good. You're not going to want to do it. So, and you're probably right. not going to do it. So mm-hmm. yeah, got to figure out a way, get get the gear to make it more attractive if it means like bundling up and then you'll be more comfortable running in the five degree weather. But
0: mm-hmm. yeah,
1: attractiveness in so many regards really does dictate a lot of our decisions.
0: Absolutely. Yes. Yeah.
1: Okay. Now I want to move into... You talk a lot about compassion because you're big into acceptance and commitment therapy, ACT. We are so quick to criticize ourselves, especially like in all regards, but at me as a dietitian, and I'm saying specifically with like food choices or our bodies or how our clothes are fitting. People are so critical. Talk to me and teach me a little bit about, well, please, please Molly, I'm (laughs) expanding. Please (laughs) further more about self-criticism and how it's just become such like the go-to response for so many things for people these days.
0: I know. I could talk about this all day. This is something I have a lot of interest in because mm-hmm. it is so related to basically every mental health issue. Mm-hmm. There's just self so much self-criticism and that just adds so many layers on top of the problem. But it, self-criticism is often there doesn't always feel like it's trying to be helpful to you, but oftentimes it does serve some type of protective function where we have these inner critics. It's not a coincidence that we all, most people have some kind of inner critic in their mind. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: And it often develops to help you deal with something really difficult in your life and adapt to circumstances. Maybe if you were bullied when you were younger or, um, you know, had difficulties in growing up or anything that you've really struggled with in your life. Self-criticism is a very natural way to kind of get to kind of motivate you. It's to change your behavior. And for most people, it works for a little while. You know, if you beat yourself up enough, yeah, maybe you'll work a little bit harder or Mm -hmm. maybe you'll push yourself a little bit more. But over time it starts to come with more consequences Mm -hmm. where then it, leads to feelings of shame and lack of motivation anxiety depression it no longer serves that motivational function but it is important to recognize that self-criticism is trying to help you reach your goals it's trying to help you fit in it does have your best interest at heart doesn't typically end up being helpful to criticize your inner critic mm-hmm. <laughs> um so, that's so interesting yeah. i didn't
1: I never thought of self-criticism as like a defense mechanism, like as
0: something to actually help us. I
1: really, maybe I'm just, you know, missing something, but I never thought of it like that.
0: I don't think most people do. It's, it's not something that I would have known if I didn't study this. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, that's true. It's, it's definitely true that our brains and our bodies are not designed to hurt us. Just from an evolutionary perspective, we're designed to, you know, succeed, to grow, to to stay protected. And so our brains are always trying to do that, even if it doesn't feel like that. It feels harsh, it feels like tough love, but it does have a positive intention.
1: Wow. That's kind of for me, that's almost like a nice reminder the next time I'm being self-deprecating and not in a funny way, but like really being critical, just to remember that my brain is not trying to hurt me. And that from, like you said, from an evolutionary standpoint, it's just trying to fit in, survive, do its best and to take it that way rather than negative.
0: It's so important. I often, you know, talk with clients about thanking your mind, thanking your inner critic, just being, Oh, thank you. I see Mm -hmm. that you're working really hard right now. You're trying to let me. You're trying to let me know that you know something. Something's not right. Something needs to change. Appreciate you. you.
1: Clothes are too tight, and that I've gained thirty pounds. I I didn't I didn't know that, but thank you so much.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think self compassion can help with that too, because we can learn to kind of take what the inner critic is is trying to communicate to you, and reframing it in a way that's actually going to be helpful, Mm -hmm. and productive.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, let's move into self-compassion.
0: Yes. Yes. So, self-compassion is has been shown by research um to be just much more of a powerful motivating force for growth and change than self-criticism. Um the research does show that people who are more self-critical tend to be more anxious and depressed, have lower mm-hmm. confidence, um fear of failure, so they maybe don't even try to achieve goals, Mm
1: -hmm.
0: all of those types of things. So it actually doesn't really help most of the time with with motivation, whereas um, people who are more self-compassionate still set high standards for themselves, but when they don't meet their goals, they're not getting angry at themselves. They're not shaming themselves. Instead, they're able to set new goals and not wallow in those feelings of shame And that leads to more motivation, more confidence over time. Um, And in terms of eating behaviors, there's been research to show that people who are more self-compassionate do tend to stick more to weight loss goals, exercising, quitting smoking, and other healthy behaviors.
1: Absolutely. I feel like for me, what this sounds like is the reason self-compassion would be helpful for obviously a number of reasons, but especially if you're Trying to do a specific diet or eat in a certain way. I'm just thinking of like what I deal with with a lot of patients and clients Mm -hmm. is black and white thinking, that cognitive Mm -hmm. distortion. And like, if you're not being self compassionate and you make a mistake, like good food, bad food, you have a bad food, and then you just throw in the towel. You're like, that's it. I'm eating whatever I want today. I screwed it up. Today is, you know, over and I'm done if you're self-compassionate and you say, okay, my breakfast wasn't super healthy. Let's get back on track. Why did I make that decision? Here's what I'm planning to have for lunch. This is a healthier option. It helps kind of just guide you, keep you on track rather than the like right, wrong, good, bad.
0: A 100%. And I think it really goes hand in hand with values too, right? Mm -hmm. Like, okay, you're being self compassionate can help you stay on track with with what you're really what's actually important to you you know so yeah maybe that day you kind of eat a quote unquote bad food
1: mm-hmm.
0: that doesn't make a big difference in terms of your long term value as long as you're able to get back on track and mm-hmm. i think when you shame yourself and say oh well you know i really messed up there and you know i'm i'm just lazy or whatever then yeah that makes perfect sense why somebody would just give up for the day. Um, but self-compassion is, is about treating yourself the same way that you would treat anybody that you really care about and love. It's not about letting yourself off the hook. It's not that it's about guiding, motivating, encouraging yourself and being gentle with yourself when you make mistakes or get off track because we're human Mm -hmm. and being imperfect is only natural and it's inevitable. And you know, holding yourself to standards of perfection, is just not helpful.
1: Yeah. Well, it's unrealistic and it really sets you up for failure because there's no such thing as perfection. I mean, look, we can all have our own definitions of perfection and in different regards, but realistically, there's no such thing as perfection. And to think you're going to have, you know, a perfect diet, a perfect body, a perfect workout routine, anything in terms of wellness, like it's just, it doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. So – and and if there is someone that has the perfect everything, I would love to meet them because I would <laughs> – they are just – they would need a lot of you for the rest of their life, Molly. It, they would be just in shambles. I mean, it would be so much anxiety, so much pressure, and, you know, I don't think that would make for the happiest person.
0: Absolutely. And I would argue that
1: that's not perfect, yeah. <laughs> you know. <laughs> it's not. Far from yes. it. Yeah. Yes. It's, yes. it's hard. I think, you know, we – Everything, especially these days, it's like internet. Everything's like instant gratification. You can see, you can Google anything, you get a picture of anything. Everything's filtered. Everything's fake, and it's like it's set, even if we know it's fake, we still like it sets these unrealistic expectations up. Like some influencer posts a picture, like oh yeah, I did this diet and now look at my body. You know, two weeks later, and they have pictures, so we have a visual, and like whether they're real or not, we don't know what they actually ate. We don't know what they actually did. We don't know what. Went into that two weeks for them to get there, but it's like it's so easy for us to be so hard on ourselves and and not show compassion because you're like I did what they said I don't have the same results.
0: Right, right. Comparing comparing yourself to other people is something that can definitely lead to self criticism. And again, going back to evolution, mm-hmm. it makes sense. You know, we adapt. It is somewhat adaptive to compare yourself to other people. If you know, when we were all cave people, the tribe over there had food and you didn't that's helpful to be like okay how can i get what they have mm-hmm. so it's kind of wired in us to compare ourselves to other people so it it makes sense why and again it's trying to be helpful it's right. trying to help you grow and, and and get what you want in life but um but yeah it, when there's that harsh self criticism it is, is really unmotivating it can kind yeah. of make you feel like yeah you just want to give up right and i find too just being a human
1: the comparison thing, like, I don't think there's anything, I, I know that you're saying evolutionary, it's helpful. And I understand that. I see that. But I have to say, I don't, I don't know if I think can think of anything more unproductive, because it's like, there's always going to be someone bigger, better, faster, smarter, prettier, richer, like, everything you're comparing. And, you know, at the end of the day, you have to be happy with yourself, you have to feel good, you have to be you know, feel good in your clothes, feel good in your job, feel like you're doing what you want to be doing. And like, it doesn't really matter how it compares to anyone else.
0: Yeah, I definitely agree with that. I think like if your mind is tending to compare to somebody else or, you know, a type of person, it's like, again, maybe that inner critic is kind of trying to communicate to you like, okay, maybe there's something about that that is attractive to you or that you don't have that you do want. And using that kind of self-compassion to be like, okay, yeah, I get that message. Like, is there anything helpful in there? Is there anything in there that, you know, I could use to make certain changes if that is something that you want to do, not to be like that person or to be better, you know, to reach a standard of perfection, but just to keep growing and improving. If, you know, it could be potentially information, but I agree that generally focusing on yourself and just kind of trying to continuously help yourself grow in the ways that are meaningful and important to you is you know, a better strategy than comparing to other people.
1: It's just, it's so hard these days. Information is so instant and it's like everyone's in everyone's business and like, you know, people curate the information you actually get. It's not necessarily the full picture. It's not necessarily accurate. So, you know, I feel bad for the kids growing up with this. Like, I know my opinion of it as an adult, but I feel like if I were younger, it's like Sometimes you don't, you know, you don't know that like that's fake or that's a lie or like it's totally filtered and photoshopped and whatever. And you're like, oh, this is what I need to look like. Like that, you know, I mean, we all suffer from that. We, even as adults, you see these ridiculous pictures and you're like, really? That's what she looks like? But I feel like as a kid, it's like
0: that would just screw me up. I know. It's, yeah, it'll be, it'll be interesting to see how this kind of the social media impacts kids now but it seems really really difficult really difficult there's yeah so much comparison and it's just so unrealistic so unrealistic. people aren't showing yeah yeah you don't see the process it's not you know a lot of it is fake yeah and you don't see that
1: yeah and I think and especially not to like Loop it back and and seem like I make no sense. But to loop it back, especially <laughs> when you're making habits, especially when you're trying something new, you have to be realistic. If you're not realistic, and I, I tell people that straight up, I'm like, if you're not realistic, this is going to fail. Like you're not going to have success, and then you're going to be totally discouraged. You know, complete lack of motivation. It's like start small, be realistic, and then build
0: up. Yes, absolutely. And the and the self compassion piece I really think is key there. It's really really helpful to be able to talk to yourself like you would talk to a friend. If mm-hmm. you're struggling with something, if you're, if you feel like you're not making the types of changes that you want in your life or moving towards your values, you know, beating yourself up, blaming yourself, shaming yourself, that is just practically speaking, not a good use of your energy.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: It's much more helpful to try to get curious about, okay, okay, what didn't work there? Mm -hmm. You know, what, what's going on there? Let's try to understand. Let's try to get curious about it. Mm -hmm. Just like you would somebody that you care about or, or a person that you love, you know, you wouldn't say you wouldn't just judge them and blame them. You would get curious. Okay. Let's try to figure this out. You know, what's not working. Let's see if we can try to make those changes and be supportive and encouraging to yourself.
1: Why are we so much harder on ourselves? than others. Like I've heard that before, you know, speak to yourself the way you'd speak to a friend. And of course it's so much easier said than done, like basically everything on this planet, but <laughs> why? Like, is that evolutionary as well? That we are just wired to be harsher on ourselves?
0: My guess would be yes. I don't know scientifically the answer to that, but, mm-hmm. but my guess would be that, that yes, we're, we're more concerned with our own, changing our own behavior than we are about changing other people's behavior, Mm -hmm. A, because that's really all we do have control over. Um, So, but yeah, that would be an interesting thing to look into. Why exactly? Because it's definitely something that every, it's so easy to see that everyone is, most people are much harder than themselves on themselves than they would be on others.
1: Oh, I mean, it's an old saying, like, you're your toughest critic. I mean, Mm -hmm. you know, I see a picture of myself. I think I look ridiculous. My friend sees They're like, oh, you look fine. It's like, but I don't. You know what I mean? Like, and it's like, is the friend just trying to be supportive and nice? Or do they just not care? Or are they seeing something different? You know, like, but we are so much harsher on ourselves.
0: Yes. Yes. Yeah. I mean, do you have a sense of why that is? No. I mean, I think – I can be cynical, so
1: I think <laughs> I think from a cynical perspective, I think it's fair to say most people don't care as much about you as they care about themselves. So mm-hmm. it's easier for them to be like, oh no, no, it's fine. But then if it's if it were if it's them, you know, that oh that wouldn't be acceptable. And they're much harsher on themselves. It's also you know, some people are really caring and love their friends and family or whoever they're speaking with and want them, you know, not to feel badly. So they're encouraging you and they want you to feel better. And, you know, they do, they are doing it from a place of positivity and good. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I'm going to look into this though, after this discussion, I do think there must be something evolutionary in terms of like, and it could just be fight or flight, like survival of the fittest, that it's like, you're the only person that has your own back that can right. really save your own life. So you are the one that's going to have the harshest opinion on every angle. You know, whether that be like a mammoth coming at you or angle on a picture. But the point is you're like at the end of the day, you have I I don't know how to word this. Like I guess you have the most control over your yeah life and safety. So you will have the harshest opinion.
0: Yeah. In, in those regards. I think that makes a lot of sense. I think that's probably true. And in terms of like that, you know, mammalian brain that's Mm -hmm. in that fight or flight mode, our brains don't care about giving us anxiety. They don't Mm -hmm. care about making us feel bad or shaming us. All they care about all your brain truly cares about on, you know, the most important level is survival and fitting into groups because that's part of survival. Right. So, um, So, yeah, so I think a lot of these thought patterns that seem really unhelpful and confusing why we would have them and why are we so hard on ourselves comes from that place of, yeah, your brain's just trying to protect you and doesn't really care that it's giving you a lot of anxiety in the process. Yeah.
1: Mm -hmm. Man, oh, man. Well, since anxiety is your bread and butter, if you will, Mm -hmm. not to make a nutrition (laughs) food. (laughs) But before we wrap up, I just want to ask briefly. So obviously, you know, we've discussed mindful eating a little bit. I've mentioned, you know, I have patients that assign a reward value to food. And, you know, as a psychologist, I just want to get your take on it. Like we obviously discussed the dopamine release that you get from food. But why do we rely on food for so many things? Like how does it start that – how does it start and how do we work to shift that reward value that we place on food? So if you're stressed, if you're happy, if you're tired, if, you know, a boyfriend broke up with you, if you're celebrating, you know, we tend to reach for food in all of those. So it's like a a wide spectrum of emotions that drive us Mm -hmm. to food and anxiety is one of them. And I'm just, you know, I'd love your take on that. Like why Mm
0: -hmm.
1: is there anything besides the dopamine? Why food? And how can we, Work again, how can we not reach for food in those?
0: Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, that's interesting that you see so much with your clients that it's not just negative emotions that they reach for food for, but also positive emotions. Oh, yeah.
1: Celebrations, mm-hmm. big gatherings, like religious events or family holidays. Those are positive. People are happy. But those are times, too, people overindulge or they have certain values tied up in the food at that moment. And they mm-hmm. – you know, overdo it or don't listen to their bodies. It's not always just negative.
0: Right. That's interesting. Yeah. I mean, I think when it comes to negative emotions or unwanted emotions, it's a way to avoid feelings. You know, when you're eating, um, you're not, you're not feeling the emotion that you were just feeling before you started eating. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's kind of a way to push that feeling away, put it off for a little bit longer so you don't have to deal with it. So, I think that makes kind of sense intuitively. Of like, yeah, we eat to avoid feelings, and and yeah. eating feels good.
1: Yeah, um, you're burying it.
0: Say like, that again. It's a way you're
1: burying the emotions, not necessarily right. under food, but it's like you're eating instead. You don't have to deal with
0: the emotions. Exactly, and unfortunately, sometimes when that happens, then you eat, you know, keep eating because you don't want to face the feeling, and then you start to feel guilt or shame about eating. And then that creates more negative emotions. And then you want to eat more to cope with those. It's a cycle Mm -hmm. with positive emotions. I would imagine that that has more to do with it being kind of a, a social aspect or kind Mm -hmm. of a, um, like food is food is used for celebration. It helps Mm -hmm. connect people. It's a way to, you know, um, feel even better than how you're feeling. Right. So I would imagine that for positive emotions, it's, it's served, it's kind of more of um, like that conditioned response over time where like, Oh, we're used to, you know, you get a promotion and you go out to dinner. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's kind of built into our society. And I think on our friendships and relationships that food is, is a way to celebrate in addition to a way to avoid negative emotions or unwanted mm-hmm. emotions, So, um, I would think that that probably has a lot to do with it. Just kind of the, the conditioned responses and habits that we get into around food because of our, um,
1: yeah. Well, I'm so appreciative of your time and expertise, Dr. Molly. I love that. I tell you Dr. (laughs) Molly and I will continue to do so for the rest of our lives. Um, thank you so much. This has been so much fun. I would love to hear any closing remarks. Is there anything that you wanted to add before we wrap up?
0: Yes, this has been so fun. I'm so glad and honored to be your first guest. <laughs> Thank you. I I did want to share just a couple of resources if people are interested in learning more about self-compassion or wanting to practice some of what we talked about today. Um, so if you go to self-compassion.org, it's a website. Obviously, all devoted to self compassion, but there are different exercises like journaling exercises, meditations, information, just readings about it. Um, And I, yeah, highly recommend that website. Um, In terms of intuitive eating, um, you probably have much more, uh, many more resources around this than I do, but I tend to um, recommend the Intuitive Eating Workbook Mm -hmm. 10 Principles for Nourishing a Healthy Relationship with Food. That's something like if you are thinking about values and maybe that's a value that you hold or want to kind of um, continue to pursue, that could be also another helpful resource. Awesome. I will
1: also be sure to link to those in the show notes. I will also be linking to your podcast, Therapists in the Wild, if anyone is interested in learning. Remember, podcasts are free if you want more information from Dr. Molly and you're not in Denver to see her or you're not not interested in doing – one-on-one visits, the podcast is a great place to start. It's a lot of amazing information. I've already learned so much and I'm on episode like six and there's- Yes. Like <laughs> and episodes, they- so yeah.
0: Yeah. We have episodes on there on self-compassion, on values, all the kind of stuff we talked about today. If you want to learn more that you could do a deeper dive on Therapist yeah. in the Wild.
1: Yeah. Okay. Thank you. I will absolutely be linking to that. And thank you so much, Molly. It's been such a pleasure having you. And that's a wrap on my discussion with Dr. Molly. I hope you all enjoyed. Please look to the show notes. I have all of her resources linked, as well as the website to her company that she works for, which is Effective Therapy Solutions.com feel free to reach out. Molly actually is located in Denver, but does telehealth visits. So if you're interested in working one-on-one with Molly, please go to the website. I also have linked her podcast, Therapist in the Wild. Please check it out. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to the Shit Talk podcast. Have a great day.